Book eleven, part three of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume four by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book eleven, part three. Now that Madame Recamier has returned to Paris, I will go back for some time to my first guides. The Queen of Naples, uneasy about the resolutions of the Congress of Vienna, wrote to Madame Récamier to find her a man who would be capable of handling her interests in Vienna. Madame Récamier applied to Benjamin Constant, and asked him to draw up a memorandum. This circumstance had the most unfortunate influence upon the author of the memorandum. A stormy sentiment was the result of an interview. Under the empire of this sentiment, Benjamin Constant, already a violent anti-Bonapartist, as is manifest in the Esprit de Conquête, allowed opinions to overflow, the course of which was soon changed by events. Thence arose a reputation for political fickleness, baleful to statesmen. Madame Récamier, while admiring Bonaparte, had remained true to her hatred against the oppressor of our liberties and the enemy of Madame de Stael. As for what concerned herself, she did not give it a thought, and she made light of her exile. The letters which Benjamin Constant wrote to her at this time will serve as a study, if not of the human heart, at least of the human head. There we see all that could be made of a passion, by an ironical and romantic, serious and poetical intelligence. Rousseau is not more genuine, but he mingles with his imaginary loves a sincere melancholy and a real reverie. Meanwhile Bonaparte had landed at Cannes. The perturbation due to his approach was beginning to make itself felt. Benjamin Constant wrote to Madame Récamier this note. Forgive me if I avail myself of circumstances to trouble you, but the opportunity is too favourable. My fate will be decided in four or five days, surely, for, though you used to like not to think so, in order to have to show me less interest, I am certainly, with Marmont, Chateaubriand, and Lenné, one of the foremost compromised men in France. It is therefore certain that, if we do not triumph, I shall in a week be either an outlaw or a fugitive, or in a cell, or shot. Grant me, then, during the two or three days which will precede the battle, as much of your time, and as many of your hours as you can. If I die, you will be glad to have done me this kindness, and you would be sorry to have afflicted me. My feeling for you is my life. One sign of indifference hurts me more than, four days hence, my sentence of death could do. And when I feel that danger is a means of obtaining a sign of interest from you, I derive from it nothing but joy. Were you pleased with my article, and have you heard what people say of it? Benjamin Constant was right. He was as much compromised as I. Attached to Bernadotte, he had served against Napoleon. He had published his work, De l'Esprit de Conquête, in which he handled the tyrant more roughly than I handled him in my pamphlet De Bonaparte et des Bourbons. He crowned his perils by talking in the newspapers. On the 19th of March, at the moment when Bonaparte was at the gates of the capital, he had the firmness to affix his signature to an article in the Journal des Débats, ending with this phrase, I shall not, like a wretched turncoat, go creeping from one power to the other, covering infamy with sophisms, and stammering out profane words to redeem a shameful life. Benjamin Constant wrote to her who inspired him with these noble sentiments. I am glad that my article has appeared. At least none can now doubt my sincerity. Here is a note which someone wrote to me after reading it. If I were to receive a similar one from somebody else, I should be gay upon the scaffold. Madame Récamier always reproached herself for having unintentionally exercised so great an influence over an honourable destiny. 
nothing in fact is more distressing than to inspire those fickle characters with those energetic resolutions which they are incapable of keeping on the twentieth of march benjamin constant belied his article of the nineteenth after driving a little distance away from town he returned to paris and allowed himself to be caught by bonaparte's seductions appointed a state councillor he obliterated his generous pages by working at the draft of the additional act from that time forward he bore a secret wound at his heart he no longer with assurance broached the thought of posterity his spoilt and saddened life contributed in no small degree to his death god preserve us from triumphing over the miseries from which the loftiest natures are not exempt heaven does not give us talents without attaching infirmities to them expiations offered to foolishness and envy the weaknesses of a superior man are the black victims which antiquity sacrificed to the infernal gods and still they never allow themselves to be disarmed madame Ricamier spent the hundred days in france where queen hortense invited her to stay the queen of naples on the other hand offered her an asylum in italy the hundred days passed madame de crudener accompanied the allies who arrived once more in paris she had fallen from novel writing into mysticism she wielded a great empire over the mind of the tsar of russia madame de crudener lodged in a house in the faubourg saint honore the garden of this house extended as far as the champs elysees alexander used to arrive incognito by a gate of the garden and politico-religious conversations would end with fervent prayers madame de crudener invited me to one of these celestial incantations i the man of every illusion have a hatred of unreason a loathing for the nebulous and a scorn for hocus-pocus we are none of us perfect the scene bored me the more i tried to pray the more i felt the dryness of my soul i could find nothing to say to god and the devil incited me to laugh i had liked madame de crudener better when surrounded with flowers and still inhabiting this paltry earth she was writing valerie only i used to consider that my old friend monsieur michaud so oddly mixed up in this idyll had not enough of the shepherd about him notwithstanding his name madame de crudener become a seraph strove to surround herself with angels the proof is contained in this charming note from benjamin constant to madame Ricamier. thursday i am a little embarrassed in fulfilling a commission which madame de crudener has just given me she entreats you to come looking as little beautiful as you can she says that you dazzle everybody and that for that reason all minds are troubled and all attention becomes impossible you cannot lay aside your charmingness but do not enhance it i could add many things about your beauty on this occasion but i have not the courage one can be ingenious on the charm which pleases but not on that which kills i shall see you presently you have told me five o'clock but you will not come in till six and i shall not be able to say a word to you i shall try however to be amiable for this once again did not the duke of wellington also lay claim to the honour of attracting a glance from juliet one of his notes which i transcribe is curious only because of the signature paris thirteenth january i confess madame that i do not much regret that business will prevent me from calling on you after dinner because every time i see you i leave you more impressed with your charms and less disposed to give my attention to politics i will call on you to-morrow on my return from the abbe sicards in case you should be in and in spite of the effect which those dangerous visits produce on me your most faithful servant wellington on his return from waterloo entering madame ricamier's drawing-room the duke of wellington exclaimed i have beaten him soundly in a french heart his success would have made him lose the victory had he ever been able to lay claim to it it was at a sad time for the glory of france that i met madame ricamier again it was at the time of the death of madame de stael 
Returning to Paris, after the hundred days, the author of Delphine had fallen ill again. I had met her at her house and at Madame la Duchesse de Duras. Gradually, her condition growing worse, she was obliged to keep her bed. One morning I went to her in the Rue Royale. The shutters of her windows were two-thirds closed. The bed, pushed towards the wall at the back of the room, left only a space on the left. The curtains, drawn back on metal rods, formed two columns at the head of the bed. Madame de Stael, half sitting up, was propped up by pillows. I approached, and when my eyes had grown a little accustomed to the darkness, I distinguished the patient. A burning fever fired her cheeks. Her bright glance met me in the dimness, and she said to me, "'Good morning, my dear Francis. I suffer, but that does not prevent me from loving you.' She held out her hand, which I pressed and kissed. As I raised my head, I saw on the opposite side of the bed, against the wall, something which rose up white and thin. It was Monsieur de Rocca, with an emaciated countenance, hollow cheeks, bloodshot eyes, and a sallow complexion. He was dying. I had never seen him, and I never saw him again. He did not open his mouth. He bowed as he passed before me. The sound of his footsteps was inaudible. He went away like a shadow. Stopping for a moment at the door, the vaporous idol twitching its fingers, turned back towards the bed to wave adieu to Madame de Stael. Those two ghosts, looking at one another in silence, one erect and pale, the other seated and coloured with a blood ready to flow down again, and to congeal at the heart, made one shudder. A few days afterwards, Madame de Stael changed her lodging. She invited me to dine with her in the Rue Neuve des Maturins. I went, she was not in the drawing-room, and was unable even to come in to dinner. But she did not know that the fatal hour was so nigh. We sat down to table. I found myself sitting by Madame Recamier. It was twelve years since I had met her, and then I had seen her for but a moment. I did not look at her, she did not look at me. We did not exchange a word. When, towards the end of dinner, she timidly addressed a few words to me on Madame de Stael's illness, I turned my head a little and raised my eyes. I should fear to profane to-day through the mouth of my years, a sentiment which preserves all its youth in my memory, and whose charm increases as life withdraws. I separate my old days to discover behind those days celestial apparitions, to hear from the bottom of the abyss the harmonies of a happier region. Madame de Stael died. The last note which she wrote to Madame de Duras was traced in big crazy letters like a child's. It contained an affectionate word for Francis. The talent which expires impresses one more painfully than the individual who dies. It is a general desolation that strikes society. Everyone at the same moment suffers the same loss. With Madame de Stael disappeared a considerable portion of the time in which I had lived. Many of those breaches which the fall of a superior intelligence forms in a century never close up again. Her death made on me a particular impression, with which was mingled a sort of mysterious astonishment. It was at that illustrious woman's that I had first met Madame Recamier, and after long days of separation, Madame de Stael brought together again two travelling persons, who had become almost strangers to one another. She left them at a funeral banquet, her memory and the example of her immortal attachment. I went to see Madame Recamier in the Rue Basse du Rempart, and afterwards in the Rue d'Anjou, when one has rejoined his destiny, he believes himself never to have left it. Life, according to the opinion of Pythagoras, is only a reminiscence. Who does not, in the course of his days, recollect some little circumstances, indifferent to all except to him who recalls them? Belonging to the house in the Rue d'Anjou was a garden. In that garden, a bower of lime-trees, between whose leaves I saw a moonbeam when I waited for Madame Recamier. Does it not seem to me as though that beam were mine, and as though, if I went to look for it in the same place, I should find it? 
I scarce remember the sun which I have seen shine on many foreheads. It was at that time that I was obliged to sell the Valet Ulu, which Madame Ricamier had hired in half-shares with M. de Montmorency. More and more tried by fortune, Madame Ricamier soon retired to the Abbe au Bois. The Duchesse d'Abrantes speaks as follows of that abode. The Abbe au Bois, with all its dependencies, its beautiful gardens, its extensive cloisters, in which played young girls of all ages, with careless looks and frolicsome words, was known only as a saintly abode to which a family could safely entrust its hope. Even then, it was known only to the mothers who had an interest beyond its high walls. But one sister Marie had closed the little gate surmounted by an attic, the boundary of the saintly domain, one crossed the great courtyard which separates the convent from the street, not only as neutral, but as foreign ground. Today this is no longer so. The name of the Abbe au Bois has become popular. Its renown is general and familiar to all classes. The woman who goes there for the first time and says to her footman, to the Abbe au Bois, is sure not to be asked by them in which direction they have to drive. Whence did it, in so short a time, derive so positive a renown, so widespread an illustriousness? Do you see two little windows right up at the top in the top lofts, there above the large windows of the great staircase? That is one of the small rooms of the house. Well, nevertheless, the fame of the Abbe au Bois took birth within its confines, came down from there and became popular. And how could it but become popular when all classes of society knew that in that little room dwelt a being who led a life disinherited of all joy and who nevertheless found words of consolation for every sorrow, magic words to alleviate every pain, succour for every misfortune. When, from the recesses of his prison, Coudier caught a glimpse of the scaffold, whose pity was it that he invoked? Go to Madame Ricamier, he said to his brother. Tell her that I am innocent before God. She will understand that evidence. And Coudier was saved. Madame Ricamier joined in her generous action, a man gifted with both talent and kindness. Monsieur Ballange seconded her endeavours, and the scaffold devoured one victim the less. It might almost be described as a marvel offered to the study of the human mind, that little cell in which a woman of more than European reputation came to seek repose and a decent asylum. The world is generally inclined to forget those who no longer invite it to their banquets. It did not forget her who, formerly, in the midst of her joys, lent an even more willing ear to a complaint than to the accents of pleasure. Not only was the little room on the third floor of the Abbe au Bois the constant object of the errands of Madame Ricamier's friends, but as though a fairy's magic wand had relieved the steepness of the ascent, the same strangers who used to ask as a favour to be admitted to the elegant mansion on the Chaussée d'Antin continued to beg the same boon. For them it was a sight really as remarkable as any rarity in Paris to see, within a space of ten feet by twenty, all opinions united under one banner, marching in peace and almost hand in hand. The Vicomte de Chateaubriand told Benjamin Constant of the unknown marvels of America, Mathieu de Montmorency with the urbanity personal to himself, the chivalrous politeness of all that bears his name, was as respectfully attentive to Madame Bernadotte, who was about to reign in Sweden, as he would have been to the sister of Adelaide of Savoy, daughter of Humbert the White-Handed, that widow of Louis the Fat who married one of his ancestors. And the man of the feudal times had not a single bitter word for the man of our days of liberty. Seated side by side on the same divan, the Duchess of the Faubourg Saint-Germain became polite to the Duchess of the Empire. Nothing seemed to shock in that unique room. When I saw Madame Ricamier again in that room, I had just returned to Paris, after a long absence. I had a service to ask of her, and went to her with confidence, I well knew through common friends, to how great a measure of strength her courage had risen, but I myself lacked it when I saw her there under the loft. 
as peaceful and calm as in the gilded drawing-rooms of the rue du mont blanc what said i to myself nothing but sufferings and my moist eye fixed itself upon her with an expression which she must have understood alas my memories passed back over the years and recaptured the past ever beaten by the storm that woman whom fame had placed at the very top of the wreath of flowers of the age had for the last ten years seen her life surrounded by sorrows the shock of which was striking repeated blows at her heart and killing her when guided by old memories and a constant attraction i selected the abbe au bois as my refuge the little room on the third story was no longer inhabited by her whom i should have gone to seek there madame Ricamier at that time occupied a more spacious apartment it was there that i saw her again death had thinned the ranks of the combatants around her and of all those political champions m de chateaubriand was almost the only one among her friends who had survived but for him too the hour struck of hope deceived and royal ingratitude he was wise he bade farewell to those false pretences of happiness and relinquished the uncertain power of the tribune to grasp one more practical you have already seen that in this drawing-room at the abbe au bois there was question of other interests besides literary interests and that those who suffer may turn towards it a look full of hope constantly occupied as i have for some months been with all that relates to the family of the emperor i have found a few documents which do not seem to be devoid of interest at this moment the queen of spain found herself under an absolute necessity to return to france she wrote to madame Ricamier to beg her to interest herself in the request which she was making to be allowed to come to paris monsieur de chateaubriand was at that time in office and the queen of spain knowing the loyalty of his character had every confidence in the success of her appeal nevertheless the thing was difficult because there was a law which affected all that unhappy family even in its most virtuous members but m de chateaubriand had in him that feeling of a noble pity for misfortune which later made him write those touching words sur le comte des grands je ne suis pas suspect le malheur seulement attire mon respect j'ai ce pharaon que l'éclate environ mais sur tombe à l'instant journaux sa couronne il devient à mes yeux roi par l'adversité des pleurs je reconnais l'auguste autorité courtisan du malheur etc etc Monsieur de chateaubriand lent an ear to the interests of a person in distress he examined his duty which did not lay upon him the fear of dreading a weak woman and two days after the request was made he wrote to madame Ricamier that madame joseph bonaparte might return to france asking where she was in order that he might send her through Monsieur durand de moreuil then our minister to brussels permission to come to france under the name of the comtesse de villeneuve he wrote at the same time to Monsieur de fagel i have related this fact with so much the more pleasure as it honours both her who asked and the minister who obliged her the one through her noble confidence the other through his noble humanity madame d'abrantes praises my conduct far too highly it was not worth even the trouble of remark but as she does not tell all there is to tell about the abbe aubois i will supply what she has forgotten or omitted captain roger another couder had been condemned to death madame Ricamier had joined me in her pious work of saving him benjamin constant had also interceded on behalf of this companion of caron's and had given the condemned man's brother the following letter for madame Ricamier. i could not forgive myself madame for always importuning you but it is not my fault if there are incessant condemnations to death this letter will be delivered to you by the brother of the unhappy roger a sentence with caron the story is very hateful and very well known the name alone will acquaint monsieur de chateaubriand with the matter he is fortunate enough to be at the same time the first talent in the ministry and the only minister under whom no blood has been spilt i say no more i leave the rest to your heart it is very sad to have to write to you almost exclusively on distressful matters but you forgive me i know 
and I am sure that you will add one more unfortunate to the long list of those whom you have saved. A thousand fond respects. Be constant. Paris, 1st March, 1823. When Captain Roger was set at liberty, he hastened to express his gratitude to his benefactress. One evening after dinner I was at Madame Recamier's as usual. Suddenly appeared this officer. He said to us in a southern accent, but for your intercession my head would have rolled on the scaffold. We were stupefied, for we had forgotten our merits. He shouted red as a turkey-cock, You don't remember! You don't remember! In vain we made a thousand excuses for our lack of memory. He went off, striking the spurs of his boots together, again and again, as furious at our forgetting our good action as though he had had to reproach us with his death. About this time Talma asked Madame Recamier to allow him to meet me at her rooms, in order to consult me on some verses in Ducis Othello, which he was not allowed to speak as they stood. Leaving my dispatches, I hastened to keep the appointment. I spent the evening with the modern Roscius, recasting the unlucky lines. He proposed an alteration to me, I proposed another to him. We vied with each other in rhyming. We withdrew to the window recess or to a corner, to turn and return a hemistitch. We had much difficulty in agreeing as to the sense and the rhythm. It would have been rather curious to see me, the minister of Louis XVIII, and Talma, the king of the stage, forgetting what we might be, emulating each other in enthusiasm, and sending the censorship and all the grandeurs of the world to the deuce. But, if Richelieu had his dramas performed, while letting Gustavus Adolphus loose on Europe, could not I, a humble secretary of state, busy myself with the tragedies of others, while seeking the independence of France and Madrid? Madame la Duchesse de Brantes, whose coffin I have saluted in the church at Chaillot, has described only the inhabited abode of Madame Recamier. I will tell of the solitary refuge. A dark corridor separated two small rooms. I maintain that this vestibule was lit up with a gentle light. The bedroom was furnished with a library, a harp, a piano, a portrait of Madame de Stael, and a view of Coppet by moonlight. Pots of flowers adorned the window-sills. When, quite breathless with clambering up three flights of stairs, I entered the cell at the fall of the evening, I was enraptured. The outlook from the windows was over the garden of the Abbey, in the green clumps of which the nuns moved to and fro, and schoolgirls ran hither and thither. The top of an acacia tree rose to the level of the eye. Sharp-pointed steeples pierced the sky, and on the horizon appeared the hills of Sèvres. The expiring sun gilded the picture and entered through the open windows. Madame Recamier sat at her piano. The angelus tolled. The sound of the bell which seemed to weep the dying day. Piange il giorno che si muore mingled with the last accents of the invocation of the night in Stiebelt's Romeo and Juliet. A few birds came to nestle in the raised outer blinds. I joined the silence and solitude from afar, above the noise and tumult of a great city. God, by giving me those hours of peace, indemnified me for my hours of trouble. I foresaw the coming rest which my faith believes in and my hope invokes. Agitated as I was elsewhere with political occupations, or disgusted with the ingratitude of courts, Peacefulness of heart awaited me in the recesses of that retreat, like the coolness of the woods when one leaves a scorching plain. I recovered my calm beside a woman who spread serenity around her, and yet that serenity was not in any way too even, for it passed through deep affections. Alas, the men whom I used to meet at Madame Recamier's, Mathieu de Montmorency, Camus Jordan, Benjamin Constant, the Duc de Laval, have gone to join Angon, Joubert, Fontaine, others who were absent from another absent company. Amid those successive friendships have risen young friends, the vernal offshoots of an old forest, in which the felling is everlasting. I beg them, I beg Monsieur Ampère, who will read this when I am gone, I ask them all to keep me in their memory. I make over to them the thread of the life, the end of which Lachesis is spinning out on my distaff. My inseparable road-fellow, Monsieur Ballanche, has found himself alone at the commencement and at the end of my career. 
he has witnessed my friendships broken by time, as I have witnessed his carried away by the Rhone. Rivers always undermine their banks. The misfortune of my friends has often weighed heavily on me, and I have never shrunk from the sacred burden. The moment of reward has arrived, a serious attachment deigns to help me to support that which the multitude of the bad days adds to their weight. As I draw near my end, it seems to me that all that has been dear to me has been dear to me in Madame Recamier, and that she was the hidden source of my affections. My memories of diverse ages, those of my dreams as well as those of my realities, have become moulded, blended, confounded into a compound of charms and sweet sufferings, of which she has become the visible embodiment. She regulates my sentiments in the same way as heaven has set happiness, order and peace into my duties. I have followed the fair wanderer along the path which she has trodden so lightly. Soon I shall go before her to a new country. As she passes in the midst of these memoirs, in the windings of the basilica which I hasten to complete, she may come upon the chapel which here I dedicate to her. It will perhaps please her to rest in it. I have placed her image there. End of Book 11, Part 3 Appendix to Book 11 by M. Edmond Biret The Congress of Verona and the Spanish War The memoirs present a voluntary and compulsory gap. Nothing is said of the twenty months, October 1822 to June 1824, during which Chateaubriand was first French ambassador at the Congress of Verona and later Minister of Foreign Affairs in Paris. Nothing of the Spanish War, which was nevertheless his work. Certainly he had no intention of placing in the shade the very events to which the honour of his name as a statesman is attached. He wished, on the contrary, to speak of them at his ease. Of all the various periods of his life, it is this which assumed the greatest development under his pen, a development so great that this narrative at first formed four volumes, reduced later to two, under circumstances which I will presently relate. Those two volumes in reality form an integral portion of the Memoir d'Outre-Tombe. That they do not figure there is due to the fact that the author feared, by giving them a place in his memoirs, to disturb the fine ordering of his book, in which the proportions are so well preserved, in which all the parts of the work harmonise among themselves with an art so perfect. For this reason, and also in order publicly to revenge the restoration, for the calumnies of which it was then the daily object, he decided in 1838 to publish as a separate work all that he had written on the Congress of Verona and the Spanish War. His manuscript, as I have just said, formed four volumes. This meant 80,000 francs, 20,000 francs per volume, which fell due to him, under the terms of his contract with the syndicate which possessed the right of publishing his future works. The four volumes were almost printed when M. de Marcellus and M. de la Ferronnay, alarmed at seeing certain diplomatic documents brought to light which were destined, according to them, to remain secret, entreated Chateaubriand to sacrifice, here, there, and everywhere, documents which nevertheless possessed the liveliest interest. He consented to most of the curtailments asked for, and gave his friend such liberal measure, that the original four volumes became reduced to two actual volumes. Well, said Chateaubriand to M. de Marcellus, when the sacrifice was consummated, the two of you cost me forty thousand francs. Be it so, rejoined M. de Marcellus, rather forty thousand francs than regrets when it is too late. And Chateaubriand replied, the thing is done now. I have respected your scruples and La Ferronnay's. I have struck out a great deal to please you. But neither of you has placed himself sufficiently, in thought, outside his century and public affairs. To judge of an effect of tone, we should place ourselves at a distance. It is by saying all that one distinguishes oneself from the herd of buttoned-up and over-scrupulous statesmen. I have conceived diplomacy on a new plan. I speak out. You are wrong to dread my revelations. They could only do you credit. I tell you, you will do later, La Ferronnay, or you, when you think the danger lessened, and for the same reasons, what you are preventing me from doing now. 
As far as I am concerned, I give you my authorization beforehand. Since Chateaubriand was induced to leave out of his memoirs the Spanish War, which was the great political event of his life, it is fitting that I should here remind the reader, if only in a few words, that this war was an act of high and great politics, and not, as the enemies of the Restoration have repeated, to satiety, an act of servitude and subjection to the northern cabinets. When M. de Montmorency, then Minister for Foreign Affairs, went to the Congress of Verona, he was the bearer of positive instructions containing these very words. France being the sole power which is to act with her troops, she will be the sole judge of that necessity. The plenipotentiaries must not consent that the Congress should lay down the conduct of France with regard to Spain. Led away by the generosity and elevation of his sentiments, which sometimes assumed a tinge of mysticism, to embrace a policy in which the private initiative of each nation should disappear, before the decisions taken in common by a sort of directorate of the great powers, charged to secure the universal prevalence of the interests of justice and humanity. The loyal and chivalrous Mathieu de Montmorency had been induced to demand that Russia, Austria, Prussia and France should address a final notice to Spain, after which the ambassadors were to be recalled. M. de Villel declared himself against this collective action in the Council of Ministers held at the Tuileries on the 25th of January, 1822. He claimed the right of France to intervene alone. Louis XVIII sided with his opinion and declared that France occupied a special position towards Spain, that for her to recall her ambassador was either too much or too little. Then he added, Louis Cateau's destroyed the Pyrenees. I will not allow them to be set up again. He placed my house on the throne of Spain. I shall not allow it to fall from it. My ambassador must not leave Madrid before the day when a hundred thousand Frenchmen are pushing forward to take his place. To speak in this way was to separate the action of France from that of the other powers. M. du Vergier de Rhin does not hesitate to admit this. It was to disown M. de Montmorency he forthwith resigned his office. He had wished to make the Spanish Christian an European Christian. With Chateaubriand his successor, it became a French Christian. At this, the head of the British cabinet, Mr. Canning, displayed a profound irritation. The hostility of England did not stop the government of Louis XVIII. Keep up a high tone with the English ministers, wrote Chateaubriand on the 16th of January, 1823, to M. de Marcellus, France's representative in London. Say and repeat to Mr. Canning, he wrote again in a dispatch dated 28th January, that we are as anxious for peace as he, and that England can obtain it before the opening of the campaign, if she will hold the same language as ourselves, and demand the liberty of the king. But be sure to add that our decision is taken, and that nothing will make us go back. And on the 13th of March, 1823, Mr. Canning is very angry with me for not yielding to his threats, and casting France at the knees of England. He cannot go to war, he has not so much as one half a plausible reason for doing so. He feels this, and he is piqued at having gone so far. But war or no war, France will do what she must do, or I shall cease to be minister. And in a postscript, give parties and answer Mr. Canning firmly. On the 17th of April, England feels that this war is giving us back our influence and restoring us to our place in Europe. She must needs be irritated and ill-disposed. Mr. Canning's self-esteem is compromised, hence his violence and his ill-humour. I recommend you henceforth to show yourself cold and reserved with Mr. Canning. Be polite, but talk little, and let him see by your manner that the French government knows its strength and defends its dignity. The deeds were on a level with the words. Chateaubriand's policy had been able and firm. A prosperous and well-managed war crowned it. Read in what terms Benjamin Constant and General Foy, although speaking in the name of the opposition, judge the Spanish war. So far from contesting what our honourable colleague has said on past events, I wish to recognise with him that the whole of that memorable expedition has been full of glory for our army, and I will add that this glory is so much the finer in that it does not consist solely of military successes. 
French generosity, inspiring even our private soldiers, has always worked and sometimes happily succeeded in making humanity prevail over vengeance, pity over fury, and in protecting the disarmed enemy against the auxiliary embittered by long reverses. Thus did Benjamin Constant express himself in the tribune of the Chamber of Deputies on the 28th of June, 1824. In the same sitting, General Foy added these words. The swiftness of the operations in Spain and the plenitude of the military success have deceived the expectations of those who are opposed to the war and surpassed the hopes of those who wished for it. All truly liberal minds have agreed to recognise that the Spanish war was not only politic, but legitimate, and, above all, national. While strengthening the government at home, it restored to France her liberty of action abroad. The Congress of Aix-la-Chapelle had freed our territory. The Congress of Verona and the campaign which followed emancipated our policy. We once more became a great nation. M. Guizot was, in 1823, one of the opponents of the expedition. This did not prevent him, when he had himself passed through public life, from writing in his memoirs. As a bold stroke of dynastic and party politics, the Spanish war succeeded fully. The sinister forebodings of its adversaries were belied, and the hopes of its supporters surpassed. Put to the test together, the loyalty of the army and the powerlessness of the conspirators seeking refuge abroad were made manifest at the same time. The expedition was an easy one, although not without glory. The Duc d'Angoulême covered himself with credit. The prosperity and tranquillity of France suffered from it in no way. Lastly, Sir Robert Peel, in a conversation with Monsieur de Marcellus, thus summed up the results of the campaign. Providence is on your side. You were right. You have won a real influence on the continent. A loyal army, flourishing finances, an heir to the crown who has acquired as much glory by his courage as his moderation. End of Appendix to Book 11